Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the end of the week in the news. I may begin by just saying that we're not going to weigh in on one topic that is a little intriguing to us, and that is the name change just announced this morning. The Cleveland Indians, the Cleveland Guardians. Apparently, the movie franchise will not be called Indians of the Galaxy because there wasn't a trade or anything like that. Um, but anyway, it's, it's interesting to us, but we've decided we have other things to pursue here today. Um, I have a couple other things that I wanted to mention to you because there's sort of things that are coming up on Friday, August 13th. We'll do something that we don't typically do on the nose, which is talk about a book. Uh, I thought it would be fun to do sort of a beach read, have a conversation about, you know, one of the hot, not necessarily highbrow novels of the summer. So uh, two of our regular newest panelists, Jacques Lamar and Julia Pistel, uh, will be here to talk about T.J. Newman's book, Falling. T.J. Newman, probably have seen all the publicity, former flight attendant who wrote a book uh, about a terrifying thing that happens on a plane. Also, next week, for the first time since April 2019, 96 noses ago, someone who is not Jonathan McPants will be producing the nose, and that is celebrity producer uh, Lily Tyson. Uh, she produced a nose 99 noses ago, <laughs> and she's coming back. And his uh, Cal Ripken streak will end. All right, so that's all the sort of business stuff, all the housekeeping, as they say. Uh, time to tell you who's on the panel today. Irene Papoulis, who teaches writing at Trinity College. Bill Usman, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. In the second segment of the show today, we will talk about Sweet Tooth, a series on Netflix, which we are watching it is not a documentary. I, I'm fairly certain of that. Uh, there are a lot of human-animal hybrids and other things that, that don't happen. But we are going to talk about a documentary in the first segment. We're also going to talk about a relatively new coffee brand, but one with a very a serious set of politics, or, or perhaps a not-so-serious set of politics that goes along with it. Uh, anyway, so we're going to begin with, in fact, a, a documentary uh, called Roadrunner. Uh, it's a documentary about Anthony Bourdain. I don't think any of us have seen it. Um, it's not, in fact, the content of the documentary that attracts our attention. It's the ethics of using sent, uh, essentially an artificially generated version of Anthony Bourdain's voice. These kinds of things, often stuck under the umbrella of deep fakes, uh, are increasingly common. They can be used uh, to deceive. Uh, they can be used to 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 entertain and and enhance an experience. This one falls kind of in the middle ground. Uh, it, it has been displeasing to a number of people. Uh, you could watch this movie and not know that you weren't hearing Anthony Bourdain's voice on the three occasions. There's only three occasions in the movie when this happens. Uh, but uh, one could watch the movie and simply not know that it had been done. Uh, so, uh, Bill Usman, I'm going to have you get us started here, particularly since you teach media studies. This seems very, very media studies-ish. Uh, so I'm just kind of where do your thoughts go here at the start? Well, the first thing I want to say is that all of the previous times I've been on the nose when I've made a terrible mistake, those were all just deep fakes. Yeah. They, I, I, want, I want that to be out there now. Those were not my 
at, well, they were my actual words, but they were AI generated. And I think that's actually uh, where I'll start with this, that these are actually Bourdain's words. They're, they're words that, that he wrote. And I, I think I have this right, although I, again, this could be a mistake. And if it is, it's a deep fake, that the way you can construct these deep fake voices is by, especially with someone like Anthony Bourdain, where there's been so much recorded speech from him is you can just find the words and kind of put them together. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that that's the process. And, you know, I'm sure there's other uh, aspects to it too, in terms of correcting the sound and, and all of that. But I, I do think that's important that they weren't constructing something that he'd never actually wrote or expressed. At the same time, I do kind of agree that, you know, one of the things it points out in the article is that maybe there should have been some type of disclaimer or something. I, I, I think that would have been good. And I do think there's this other kind of thing lurking under the surface that the director says that Bourdain's ex-wife, who is also his literary executor, gave permission for this, and yet she swears she did not. So I think that's of concern as well. Yes, this guy, particularly in the New Yorker uh, article by Helen Rosner that we read, the guy who's the director seems to me to have amplified his problems by being less than forthright about them, even you know, even on subsequent questioning about them. Things just sort of trickle out in a not entirely uh, forthright way. Uh, how about you, Irene? Where where do your sentiments fall here at the beginning? Yeah, I I, I mean, in, I guess I overall I do agree with what Bill just said. But um, when I first read it, I found myself, I was surprised at my own reaction because I would have thought I would be the kind of person that would think it was an outrage and it was terrible and they never should have done it. <laughs> But I started thinking about writing an essay, you know, when you write an essay, you know, like maybe you're trying to give a quote or, you know, what you remember someone saying or what people say. I mean, I know journalists aren't supposed to do that, but so often people, you know, maybe misremember the quote or they'll say something and you can't expect that everything you read in an essay or see in a documentary is you know, something that actually happened or can you, you know, I mean, you're trying when you're writing it, when you're doing a documentary, you're, you are, it is kind of like, it can be kind of like an essay. You're sort of telling some kind of story. Usually you have some kind of point of view. I'm sure they have a point of view on Bourdain. So maybe it's not as bad as it might seem, you know, and so I can entertain that that possibility, even though I'm also saying, wait a minute, no, they should have told us it wasn't, he didn't really sit down and say that even if he wrote it. Right. I mean, you know, Bill used the word disclaimer. I would use the word disclosure. And, and I think, you know, it, the the article we read talked about ways in which the signals are sent in certain documentaries that what you're seeing is some kind of alteration, recreation, whatever. You know, I, I mean, I actually sort of think just right at the beginning, you know, just say have a little you know CG thing up, white letters on a black screen saying, you know, several of the several of the quotes from Anthony Bourdain that you'll hear in this movie are actually. You know, they, they are his actual word. Whatever. Say whatever then, it is. But I, then would it bother you? I mean, in a way, why do it? Why not just have somebody else read it, you know, well, and say he wrote this? Right. Does, well, does it enhance? I did movie? think about that also. I did think about, you know, I've seen plenty of documentaries where they've had other people do the voiceover of words that someone who is deceased has said. It, yeah. To me, it's a little weird that they didn't go that route. Yeah. Would it shock you guys to know that this happens in public radio maybe more than you might be aware? 
I mean, Are you a deep fake right now? I, I'm not a deep fake. And so I'll give you an example. I don't even know if I'm supposed to tell this story, but what do I care at this Yay. point? Tell uh, it, tell so, it. And tell so, it. So let me do a disclaimer at the beginning and say, as far as I'm concerned, and I say this you know, probably about once a week uh, to the staff or whoever, the, still the gold standard, the absolute best show on public radio, the show that kind of exemplifies what, what at least I would like to be trying to do is This American Life. But This American mm-hmm. Life, for example— uh, there's a, f- a famous uh, episode uh, involving a phone call that involved the Little Mermaid. You people can track it down if they want to. But one of the one of the people who's on the show is this very obstreperous kind of guy. I believe his name is Josh, uh, and he's the friend of Jonathan Goldstein, who's kind of narrating the piece. And at the end, Josh, in this very funny way, said, "I didn't want you to say that. That's NPR wussy doc." Well, in reality, <laughs> in reality, he didn't say wussy. He said the other word. And what they did at this American. <laughs> Life, was they combed through every single thing that they had of him on tape looking for a W noise. Um, and and they they changed the P word to wussy uh, using wow. by just taking a, a, a W noise he had made and grafting it on there. Now, that's kind of a funny example, but that kind of thing, fixing up audio, you know, fixing up audio so that really what you're hearing is not exactly what was recorded, but is sweetened, tuned up for for whatever reason, um, or retakes and stuff like that. Um, retakes of the person asking the question, uh, so they do it better or whatever. There's a lot of that stuff that goes on in public radio. I still think that we need to have a conversation also about, and Bill, you brought this up, about documentaries. What the hell does the word documentary mean anymore uh, if it's not specifically going to document things? <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Bill, go ahead. Take the, take the ball. Well, there's a piece in the Washington Post where the author makes a um, really kind of very – I think overly rigid distinction, a flat out declaration that documentaries are not journalism. And while I think to a certain extent, there is some truth to that, that they are, you know, different forms. I I also think that documentaries are so varied that there's kind of a, a, a continuum Um, along which they lie, some of which are indeed very, very close to journalism. I mean, I'm not sure what you would have called uh, Edward R. Murrow's Harvest of Shame if if not, I mean, it's a documentary, but it is also journalism. And then I think there are others that far, you know, that go far afield from that. So I think it, I don't think we should be that that rigid about it. And I- yeah, go shouldn't ahead. We have, shouldn't we have a different name, though? Uh, you know, it sounds like, you know, you could call it a news documentary. If I saw something called mm-hmm. that, I would think it was, di- you know, it was a different thing from, you know, a sort of creative documentary, you know, or, you know, so there's nonfiction, because in a way, the only like we use documentary to mean anything that isn't fiction, right? Right. And right. so, but we and don't I do think there's a connection non-fiction. there to like that idea of creative nonfiction, which is its right. whole it's it's a whole kind of thing which isn't quite journalism but is journalism related right well you know so irene i i'm 95% sure 
By the way, while I was talking about that thing, both of the producers who were working on the show today, the technical producer and the episode producer, said they have done things, including apparently this week uh, on the, when we rebroadcast my Wally Funk interview, and Jonathan says he changed something I said somehow or something. So this goes on all the time. Even the host we're going to need a show just about that. Yeah, the host doesn't like even know I'm talking. All of so this is, goes on, it goes on a lot more. But but I mean, I recall that you were on the show where we talked about the Woody Allen documentary uh, on on HBO. And you yes. came out of watching it completely just, you know, rock sure that Woody Allen was guilty of everything he's ever been accused of. And then we started sending you stuff that, you know, materials that weren't in the documentary, you know, exculpatory materials or just stuff that the documentary had completely excluded, you know. Mm-hmm. And by the end, you you were really kind of shocked, I think, at the level of manipulation that had gone on. That that documentary in this case certainly didn't mean they, it was sort of a full Plano favorites with malice towards none, with favoritism towards uh, – no, I forget how the quote goes. But anyway, you, you know what I'm saying, basically. Yeah. Yes, I do, and I I knew something was it was reminding me of something. But now you now you now you've reminded me of what exactly I was it was in the back of my mind where I've had been hoodwinked by a documentary, and then not necessarily blame the documentary, but just really said, "Wow, you can never trust somebody's view because that's somebody's view." It's like reading an article that somebody writes about something. You you can't say this is that you never would read it even a, even in the New York Times, let's say, or or something that claimed to be you know true. Uh, without saying, well, let me just look at another source and see what they're saying. You know, so maybe it's really, you know, I think it's in a way it's a, it's a responsibility of a viewer not to say, oh, I saw it in a documentary, therefore it's true, you know. But at the same time, this thing about Bourdain's voice, well, I don't know, if you do it all the time in public radio. We don't exactly do that, but, but yeah. we do things. We, you know, I mean, audio is occasionally manipulated um, in, in public radio. I mean, you know, Bill, this really is a really good media studies professor kind of question yes. that we probably can't resolve in one short conversation here. I mean, is caveat emptor or caveat viewer or something, is that enough? Just to sort of, because ideally with documentaries, there would have been an academy of documentaries that managed to police this a little bit better. But that's not what happened. You know, it's the frontier. People do whatever they want to do. So mm-hmm. it sort of, sort of goes back onto the consumer. I don't know whether that's a good thing or not. Well, I do want an open field, you know, because it is a creative art form. And I do want the creators to have a really wide playing field to operate on where they can try all kinds of different things that may not work, that may work. I'm even okay. You know, dare I say, maybe I shouldn't say this on the air. You can count it off as a deep fake if you don't like it, that it's okay to test those ethical boundaries also, because I'm not sure how do we know what the ethical boundaries are unless they're tested. And I also think it, you know, it is a media studies question because it, it, it does go back to that question of, you know, whether journalism is just some kind of uh, unvarnished truth. And, you know, I think we have to, dis- you know, we have to dispense with this idea of um, objectivity as something that can ever actually be completely and purely uh, attained it's it's more aspirational that you want to be fair 
that you don't want to make things up, that you want to be accurate rather than that you don't have any point of view at all. So of course there's going to be a point of view. I think the question about this particular example is did that go too far in terms of the question of not making things up when when it's not really him speaking, but it it sounds as if he is and there is no you know disclaimer or context given, uh, does that shade off into the thing of making things up? I think it does. I just feel like I, I agree with you. And but I'm also thinking now that honesty is really important. And so, I mean, even for for the tweaks that happen on public radio, it's not in the name of deception. But you know, to say this is his voice when it isn't his voice, that is in the name of deception. You yeah. know, so I, I guess I would I would come out on the side of saying they should have they should have told us they were doing that. You know what would be interesting to know? Uh, and, and and would be relatively easy to find out. And I don't think Rosner brings, brings it up in her piece is how much of this stuff, this kind of thing might have gone on on Bourdain's own show. I, I had the opportunity to work with Bourdain once. Uh, it was the Connecticut Forum. And, you know, you do get to know somebody pretty well when you're moderating the panel because we usually start around two or three in the afternoon. You know, we spend the whole afternoon together doing various things. You get to see people kind of being who they are when, when a big audience isn't listening. And then you get to go on stage with them and then you deal with them at intermission and in the, in the, in the green room and then afterwards. And, and I, I, have, I don't think I've ever met anybody in my life who is such a consummate professional. He never, ever got any, let anything get in the way hmm. uh, of his professionalism. Um, and uh, he was courteous uh, and, and, you know, very, very polite to everybody and from stagehands to whoever, you know. And at the end of the night when he left, I thought 12 hours from now he will not remember my name. You know, I mean, he absolutely won't um, because, in fact, whoever he really was, because there's there's a part of the outcry about this has been well, Bourdain's whole stock and trade was his authenticity, you know, and I don't happen to think that. I mean, I think I, think, I thought he was terrific in a lot of different ways, but I, I, there was no way in the world you were getting to know Anthony Bourdain as, in fact, this documentary tr- sort of tries to convey. And as you know, from the time at the moment he killed himself, I think we suddenly knew, oh, we didn't really know this guy. Uh, so that whole idea, anyway, of authenticity, I think, is a little bit pumped up. Uh, and I'm, I guarantee you on Bourdain's show, there were times where they looped audio back in because the audio they had didn't work. Or so. I mean, right. I'd just be astonished if that weren't the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I don't know that it necessarily you know, hammers a nail on any particular place on that board, but it's sort of worth thinking about anyway. Um, all right. So we, we're going to jump over here to um, a, another thing. I believe Irene was the idea who came up with this idea, although it turned out all of us had read the article anyway. Uh, there's an article in last Sunday's New York Times Sunday magazine uh, about a new brand of coffee uh, called, uh, or a fairly new brand of coffee uh, called Black Rifle. It's actually founded in 2014, but it's sort of become very, very prominent recently for a couple of different reasons. One is it's been embraced as part of a kind of lifestyle consumer product by not just a bunch of military and ex-military people, but the kind of other substratum of military wannabe kind of people. Uh, and it, they they really do kind of um, flesh it out with videos and podcasts and merch and stuff like that. Uh, but it's also become prominent because a number of people engaged in, in deplorable acts, whether it's uh, Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha or one of the participants in the January 6th uh, insurrection, were wearing Black Rifle merch, which either is or isn't the kind of publicity that you want if you're a brand like this. So, Irene, why did you uh, why did you suggest this? What what intrigued you about this? 
Uh, what intrigued me in, in a way is a kind of, you know, my, my, my theme of changing my mind as I learn more about something. But um, because when I first saw the article and it had that cover on the on the cover of the Times magazine with a coffee cup with all these horrible slogans, I, I approached it thinking, these are going to be the the people that I absolutely disagree with about everything. I'm going to detest them. I can't believe it. You know, they're just terrible and it's horrible. Um, and I, as I read the article, I felt myself getting increased, feeling increasingly sympathetic to the guy that started that. I mean, first of all, that started this coffee company, Black Rifle. He loves coffee. He brought coffee beans. He brought his own ground coffee beans with him when he went to Afghanistan and Iraq as a soldier, you know. And um, and he thinks archery, he teaches, you know, and so I realized that it's about they're they're so similar, the sort of the sort of um, uh, um, feeling that you're a member of a group that people want from anything people all people want from their from coffee people, you know, who, who are Democrats want it from our coffee too. maybe, you know, the product that we get, you know, what do they want? They want community. They want archery as meditation you know they 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 do archery together as a sport you know he said guys just want got veterans come back and they just want buddies to hang out with and their brand provides them a sense of community so obviously um you know he made the point that going to the military is the most politically incorrect profession ever which um of course i absolutely agree with but i thought it was fascinating that the that the impulses are are fam were familiar to me uh, for why people would want to buy this kind of coffee and even you know sort of associate with each other even though I have you know you, you know I can't stand what they stand you know the guns and everything that they stand for so I thought it was an interesting uh, anyway so I thought it was interesting you know I'm not sure that I agree with that statement that he made that you just quoted too I mean I don't think you know. I don't know. I don't think Joe Biden thinks that Bo Biden was politically incorrect for being in the military or that John Kerry felt like he was uh, politically incorrect for serving in combat. I think it is it's sort of it's a little bit more our relationship with all this is a little bit more complicated and the way that ex-service members present themselves is also a little bit more complicated and, and less monolithic, uh, I think, than than that quote seems to suggest. But so, Bill, how about you? Uh, give us your perspective on this whole thing. Well, I agree with your point that ex-military people are much less monolithic. Um, some of the best books that I have on my shelves critiquing the military-industrial complex come from ex-military people, right, who were inside of it and are the best witnesses to that. I do agree with Irene that, you know, this doesn't happen just on the right, that it happens on all sides of the political spectrum. And of course, you know, the, the so-called culture wars are going to involve consumption. The stuff we eat, drink, where, where we shop, who we give our money to. I mean, that's that's a big part of all of that. And I do think, you know, if you're going to name your business after weaponry, after, you know, tools that kill people, you are making a clear statement. And that's going to attract some people and it's going to repel some people. Um, speaking of authenticity, in our previous discussion, one of the things that I find quite inauthentic is then when their product starts getting associated with all of these other people that they are attracting, now in the article, the founders, they want to be all, you know, oh, yeah, but that we don't really want 
we didn't really want people like that. We really didn't want the worst people to endorse us. And while that is true to a certain extent, later on in the article, you find out that these guys have embraced and collaborated with essentially a war criminal. Mm -hmm. Um, Eddie Gallagher, who was an ex-Navy SEAL, who was um, brought up on charges of doing incredibly egregious things in Iraq. And they have, um, they've, 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 they've brought him in, they've, they've worked with him, they've endorsed him. And so, you know, to me, that's more than just being pro-military, that, that's going a little bit further than that. Yeah, one thing that I was sort of, was sort of thinking is that, you know, really uh, our, our relationship with the military, particularly around issues like this, are, is kind of dichotomous. And one of the things that became clear when Trump started pardoning people accused of war crimes is that his own secretaries of military service didn't want him to do that. Secretary of the mm-hmm. Navy, super uncomfortable with this. I think there were even maybe resignations uh, at that level because, in fact, they don't want bad soldiers and bad uh, sailors. They want they want good ones. They want ones who don't commit atrocities. Uh, and, and there's a way in which we counted on the military with this new summer spate of Trump-related books coming out. It's pretty clear that some of these generals stood up and said, if he thinks that we are going to you know, back him up with the decertification uh, of uh, of an election. We don't do that. The military doesn't do that. We are not available to help him out in that way. And he should understand that. And so in a way, the military was sort of the last bulwark we might have had in, in, in the middle of a very dangerous situation. And these guys epitomize something else. I, I agree with Irene, too, that there's something kind of winning about Evan Hafer, I think is his name. You know, I mean, he seems like kind of an amusing guy, a guy you'd enjoy knowing, who's trying to make some distinctions between himself self and, and say, racists. Um, but it's tricky because you start playing to that audience and, and you know, it's it's hard to get the toothpaste back in the tube once you've really sort of courted a certain kind of person and, and really, you know, flaunted a certain approach to, you know, almost a, a kind of a paramilitary uh, a display of yourself. And, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I want to watch this whole thing unfold. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Can I just say that? Yeah, because um, what the the author of the article says that they're pitched to a romanticized, quote unquote, romanticized elite, the rugged frontiersman, you know, and so it's almost like a fantasy of war as opposed to um, the actual reality of the of of our military. You know, it's sort of like the tough guys that are, you know, they they don't want pity. They just want to be tough. And I think, you know, they, 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 you know, strong and and all the things that that I I you know don't believe in you know but that you know people in, in my demographic don't believe in but so it's not it, I mean I think that that's the interesting tightrope that he's walking you know sort of like when you as Bill said when you romanticize that you're going to get these people that don't know what they're that are just horrible vicious killers you know um, and Trump is going to pardon them you know but then. They, they want to say, yeah, but we didn't want to go that far, you know, and so yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's always tricky, I guess. It's hard to ride that dragon. All right. Well, what, yeah. one thing we do know is that left to their own devices in the middle of an apocalypse, some of those men will start hunting very cute human animal <laughs> hybrids. That's what we're going to talk about in the next segment right after this.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. Well, the other thing we did this week is we all watched a, a series on Netflix called Sweet Tooth. Um, I think what we'll do to maybe begin to set up the premise, we'll just play a clip here before we get into it. Uh, you're going to hear Will Forte, uh, who, by the way, if Will Forte's around, if you see him in your field of vision, there's a good chance the world is ending. I mean, this is like his second time through uh, one of these apocalypse things. He plays Pubba, the father uh, of uh, a little boy who is part human, part deer. Uh, and you're going to hear uh, Nixon Bingley as the young Gus. Uh, this is not the person who plays Gus for most of the movie. Gus is the little boy who's part human, part deer. Okay, that's all you need to know. Here we go. Once upon a time... Bad people ruled the earth, doing what they wanted, taken from the planet. So nature made everyone sick and wiped away as many as she could. And then a miracle happened. Your kind. They called them hybrids. No one knows where you came from or how, but the people who were left feared you. Some bad people are still out there, Gus. It's my job to make sure they never get in. And it's your job to live a full life. I saw her today. Who? Mama. She was pretty, but she didn't have nubbins like me. Yeah, that wasn't your mother, Gus. How do you know? Because your mother's gone, Gus. That's how I know. So the story uh, of the series is primarily that of Gus. He is very much, at least in my opinion, the David Copperfield of this story, although there are some other parallel stories going uh, uh, along the way, one of them involving uh, a doctor uh, whose wife uh, actually has a, a a version of the virus which he's able to keep frequently in remission and also able to keep secret from the very few pe- remaining people around him. Uh, another uh, story involves a sanctuary inside a zoo uh, run by a woman who adopts one of the hybrids and then begins letting other hybrids uh, into the sanctuary. Uh, so with all of those, and well, there's other things too. There actually are a couple of other parallel plot lines going here. So um, Irene, uh, overall, uh, my sense was that this managed to charm and intrigue you to a certain degree. 
oh, a kid that looks like a, that's half deer. That doesn't sound like my kind of thing at all. But um, it pulled me in in a, in in a surprising way. And I'm I'm curious. I still don't know, having seen all the eight episodes, exactly what the what the what the filmmakers were were trying to say with it. But um, but I think it's worth it's absolutely worth watching. It's very interesting. Yeah, how about you, Bill? Bill, I think, you know, initially, so we do email back and forth over the days. There's at least one listener who doesn't like it when I acknowledge that we email during the week and share our thoughts. So you started out a little cranky, Bill, and then somehow or other that little <laughs> dear, dear kid, he kind of melted your, your cold, cold heart. Yeah, I'm crusty on the outside and soft as a marshmallow on the inside. Um, I did kind of yo-yo you all back and forth because that you know I watched in these different chunks and at first um, I, I I really didn't care for it very much I think I used the word tedious uh, which is actually like a I think a really severe critic criticism of you know a film or a television show to call it tedious um, maybe I was just tired uh, the first day that I started watching it or maybe it did get better um, but I ended up liking it a fair bit. I thought the last few episodes were actually quite good. Um, one of my concerns at the beginning was I just felt like it was it was kind of cliched. You know, it's this apocalyptic, you know, theme and a lot of the kind of well-worn tropes of that were coming out, you know, of you know, people who are, you know, either really, really good or really, really awful and all of that stuff. But I think by the end, and I didn't feel like anybody was a real person, uh, that they were just kind of like these archetypes. But I think as I went through it and I got to some of the later episodes, I did start really caring about some of the characters in it. And I and I do think it's it's trying to to deal with some big themes. And, you know, that that was interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, we could tick through all the themes, but we'd be doing it for a long time. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. bioethics, uh, yeah. a, a really big one there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, Irene, another thing that, I mean, we've done so many episodes of The Nose together. I, I think I'm starting to have a sense of what works for you. seems to me that character development works for you. And, and I think character development works pretty well here. You know, I, I do think, I'm not I'm not all through, all through all eight episodes yet, but, you know, I do think that Gus is a little bit of David Copperfield, although he begins to exhibit more and more leadership qualities as we go along. But some of these other characters, and, and I would especially uh, mention the guy who was more often referred to uh, as the big man than by any other name. Uh, his real name is Tommy Jeppard uh, in the uh, in the series. Uh, he's a former NFL player who then joined this sort of black rifle coffee paramilitary organization uh, called the Last Men, who ran around hunting these hybrids and just causing all kinds of trouble. Um, you know, I, I mean, I thought his character in particular is, I mean, Bill was right when he was saying early on, well, this is kind of a stock character, right? The flinty, crusty, there's that word again, um, you know, not in grudging helper of some little kid. I feel like I have seen that character, but they seem to do something with it, too. Yeah, they do. And and I agree that, the yeah, I love the character development of him and and it's true that it's the kind of you know if you're if you if you don't like platitudes or cliches or soaring music leading up to a very emotional uh, moment, then you probably wouldn't like this that much. But if you like those things, they do it kind of nicely. You know, like some of the things he says 
I, I just couldn't help roll my eyes thinking like, yeah, 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 of course he's going to, you know, they're going to have him say that. But aside, you know, next to that, first of all, his acting is so great and you just like him. He's so likable and his struggle, he's struggling with something that you see. And we learn more towards the end about exactly what that is that he's struggling with. And, um, and it's, and he's, he's, he's fun to watch and, and a wonderful, you know, sort of it's the you know the the movie where the, the the sort of unlikely people get together and they form a kind of family you know is kind of is it's it's always it's a good story it's a good message right it's very very interested in the whole question of family interested in the question of who are your real parents but I, I my one of my fears was I don't know why it is but to me one of the creepiest movies I've ever watched is Spielberg's AI and particularly that Haley Joel Osment you know android thing that's constantly looking for his mother and it's just like so heartbreakingly weird and creepy and I was worried that this was going to turn into that it doesn't what it does Bill and this is a conversation that we have also had on a lot of um, noses to, to you and me together you know it it is often very funny uh, and it has the ability mm-hmm. to sort of like really go at its subject matter in, in a genuinely warm hearted comic way it is also frequently very disturbing uh, <laughs> I mean just the vacillations in background music are kind of astonishing. I mean, there's this really sort of ominous music that often wells up because terrible things go on and people are having to make horrible choices. And this doctor, his wife is very possibly a super spreader, you know, uh, and but he doesn't want anybody to know that. He wants to be able to treat her. Uh, you know, I mean, and I think they actually maintain the serio-comic kind of polarities better in this than in a lot of things I've seen. I don't know what your sense was. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I wrote down a little note. Um, is it possible to have a whimsical, a whimsical apocalyptic movie yeah. or show? Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like the, the the whimsy apocalypse. And I generally don't really like whimsy very much. Um, and I do like apocalypse a lot so that you can do whatever diagnosis you want to do of that. Um, but I do think you're right that it 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 does mesh those uh, fairly well. I don't know if you folks caught, um, I, I saw lots of illusions in it. Like I thought I saw like a Wizard of Oz illusion. I thought a, I saw a Lord of the Flies illusion, but I don't know if you guys caught um, even an allusion to a league of their own. Um, when the big man says to Gus, there's no crying in the apocalypse. <laughs> right. It, it's, it's a great line. Well, there's, a, there's a straight up featuring of Animal Farm, too, at one point. Um, yeah, it's yeah on, it's on absolutely. Well, actually, to sort of get a little bit of this and also let you hear a little bit of this character, Tommy Jeopard, we're going to play a clip from the second episode. This is when uh, Gus and his reluctant protector, uh, Tommy Jeopard, otherwise known as the big man, uh, are, are up in what is an abandoned visitor center at Yellowstone Park, except that it's not entirely abandoned. A nuclear family of three are there. You're going to listen to the mother uh, played by Anna Julianne. This whole thing is shot in New Zealand. Uh, and has fabulous New Zealand scenery and also some very good New Zealand actors. So here's the the mom uh, talking to crusty old Tommy Jeppard. What are you doing with him? Trying to get rid of him. He's more said than done. You're one of them, aren't you? I uh, saw your mark. Not anymore. How many people have you killed? Can we not do this? Did they all deserve it? Did you come here for my family? 
My son? I came here for food. Look, lady. I did what I had to to survive. Just like everyone else. We never stole. Or kidnapped. And we never killed anyone. That's because people like you had people like me to do it for you. He believes you're going to look after him. He believes whatever the hell he wants. If it were up to me, there'd be no such thing as kids like him. Then why did you save him? Does it matter? We should say that this is based on uh, some comics slash graphic novels uh, by a guy named Jeff Lemire. And, and, and Irene, to that point, you know, I was intrigued by whenever they do this, whenever they adopt, say, a graphic no- adapt a, a graphic novel to, to any screen, I'm always intrigued by the number of things that they try to have look like a graphic novel. In particular, the, one of the, the well, the, the villain-in-chief, General Abbott, who has this long beard and re- prefers these kinds of dark goggles. I mean, he really looks looks drawn. <laughs> I mean, he looks like he's just like just walked off the page of a graphic novel. He, yes, he does. And he acts like one too, like, like it too. Um, but I just, one, one thing that's just haunting me from that scene that you just played mm-hmm. is people like, you know, we never killed anyone. Well, that's because people like you have people like me to do it for you. I thought, whoa, that was a, I love that line right there. But anyway, that's straight um, up black rifle coffee right there. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And they hate the through line. <laughs> who just, yeah, they just hate the people who, who feel that way. And I, and I, and um, I think that it's, it's a, it, it makes sense why they would hate that. Um, yeah. The whole, I mean, the whole scape of the, of the, of the characters, the hybrids too. And then, and the, and the landscapes definitely feels like a gra- felt like a graphic novel to me too. Yeah, it is. but not. But it looked like Yellowstone. I couldn't believe it was made in New, when I heard it was made in New Zealand because it really looks like Yellowstone Park, and they have the sign that's perfect. You know, right? Well, I think we probably have to stop there. Uh, the series oh. is called Sweet Tooth. Uh, we could talk about it a lot more. I think we all and they it. did it before COVID. We have to say that they they conceived of it, which is amazing. Yeah, because it really and yet does. It has so much resonance. Yeah. Yes. Right. I mean, yeah. right down to you know people wearing face masks in certain situations that look a lot like the face masks that we've been wearing for the last 16 months, uh, all yeah. kinds of stuff. Yeah, it really is very, very prescient. It seizes around the corner from where it was to where we are. All right, so it's called Sweet Tooth. Uh, we think you'll enjoy it. I don't think I would necessarily have little kids watch this. Yeah, I was thinking that too. <laughs> I mean, it, it no. sort of looks like a little kid thing, but then it I, I know as a little kid, I would not have been able to handle it. So use your own judgment, but it, it's not light family entertainment, let's just say. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. We want to hear what the panel has to recommend. All right, we are back. It is time for me to say a genuine uh, and very, very uh, grateful uh, set of thank yous. I guess all thank yous are inherently grateful, aren't they? Uh, to Cat Pastor, who is the technical producer of this show, and Jonathan McPants, who is completing his incredible streak of, is it 96? 96? 
uh, consecutive um, uh, 95, no, 95, 95 uh, consecutive news episodes that he has produced. But next week, celebrity producer uh, Lily Tyson will be producing. I know that we're going to talk about Schmigadoon next week. I don't think we've entirely decided what, what else we're going to talk about. Schmigadoon is this very amusing kind of send-up uh, of musicals, an affectionate send-up of musicals with like everybody you want to see, every possible person you would want to see in that send-up in it. Uh, all right. So time to make some recommendations. Uh, so let's do that. Uh, Irene Papoulis, why don't you get us started? Okay. Well, I just want to congratulate Jonathan also. So 95 consecutive noses is a lot of noses. Um, and um, I'm, I'm current, this isn't really an endorsement first. I'm, cur- I'm currently reading Landslide by Michael Wolf and totally enjoying it. And it kind of reminds me of the thing about invention. You know, mm-hmm. he's, who knows how much he invents about the scenarios that happen in the Trump White House. But and, you know, his thesis is that it was they had no plan. It was just like total chaos. And it's it's I'm finding it really interesting to read. But um, but what I'm really endorsing is, um, well, it starts started when I read an article in The New Yorker by Zoe Heller um, about what makes a cult and how people who join cults are not necessarily so different from those of us who don't. And just exploring that idea in a way that I thought was really interesting. So I thought, who is this Zoe Heller and discovered that I think I've probably read some other articles by her before, and also that she wrote this novel called, um, that was made into a movie called Notes on a Scandal, which, and I had saw the movie years ago, but I read the novel. It's called What Was She Thinking? Notes on a Scandal. Um, the movie had Judy Dent- Dench and mm-hmm. Kate Blanchett, and, but it's, it's a really, and I took it on a trip I went on recently and read the whole thing. It was a real page turner about relationships between women and friendships and how, and jealousy and envy, and as well as being about a teacher who has an affair with a student. So I highly recommend it. It's called What, Are we, what Was She Thinking? Notes on a Scandal. Yeah, I heard the Zoe Hiller uh, cults piece too. I thought it was very interesting and kind of yeah. bore out some of my experiences in covering cults earlier in my career. Uh, Bill Usman, how about some uh, ideas from you? Well, uh, one of my endorsements was actually going to be Schmigadoon um, oh. because I have to credit my wife, Lori, because she's the one who convinced me to watch it. I wasn't so sure. It really is great. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's especially if you know like that kind of golden age musical kind of style. Uh, And then for my other one, I'm going to take advantage of uh, our main topic today. And I'm going to recommend a book called Sweet Tooth that has nothing to do with the show Sweet Tooth that we discussed today. Uh, Sweet Tooth is a novel by the British writer Ian McEwan that came out in 2012. And it's about a um, student in the 1970s, a a literature student who was actually recruited by the British Secret Service to get involved in this complicated kind of propaganda way of using literature to try to fight against communism. And it also is a complicated romance. It's it's really a great novel, Sweet Tooth by Ian McEwan. I could recommend Ian McEwan in general. I think I've mentioned to both of you that um, one of my projects during the pandemic was reading all of his novels, and he's such a great author. He is, he is. 
so I, I'm going to piggyback onto one of our other topics and mention a kind of coffee that I'm going to recommend to you. Uh, is if you want to exhibit a kind of a different set of political sensibilities, uh, it's called Big Up Brew. Uh, and uh, Big Up, uh, as in the kind of Jamaican expression of uh, approval, uh, I believe it is a black-owned company. Uh, I believe it's local, like right around here. I'm not quite sure whether it's in Hartford or not. I've been buying at the, at the, at the West End Farmer's Market in Hartford. Uh, the guy who runs it is named Jermaine Fraser Phillips. The coffee's really good, and he really knows his coffee. He's fun to talk to at the coffee, uh, at the farmer's market, because, I mean, he well, likes to, he gets very excited in a way that I like uh, about specific beans and new ones that are coming in and stuff like that. And coffee's really good, too. And so if you want to live out your coffee values or your real-life values in your coffee in a different way, uh, I say uh, go for Big Up Brew. I want to also piggyback on Sweet Tooth. And I want to endorse a song that is, uh, I think, you know, maybe the most joyous moment or one of the most joyous moments. Moments uh, in uh, in Sweet Tooth is when two little boys, one of them is our uh, part dear friend Gus, uh, sing and dance. Especially Gus to "I Can't Get Next to You" by The Temptations. Uh, and "I Can't Get Next to You" is like it's because it was the Temptations sort of high funk period. It doesn't really get played, I don't think, as much as like I don't know. I spend a lot of time. <laughs> in a hospital room with a woman I love and we listen to a lot of the music that we love together and we listen to Temptations tunes but we don't listen to that one and I just was reminded of how good it really is. It came out in 1969, went to number one. I think twice it went to number one uh, on one occasion displacing Sugar Sugar by the Archies. I think I'm correct about that. Uh, anyway, uh, so and then my third and final recommendation is um, uh, a, a mystery novel. Uh, um, it's uh, by Louise Penny, who kind of specializes in these novels. I mean, if you're waiting for the border, I don't, can't remember the, whether the Canadian border is reopened or not. But if you're waiting for it to reopen and for, to go back to Montreal and all the stuff that you like up there, uh, Louise Penny kind of specializes in that whole area. She's got this, you know, venerated detective, uh, who uh, police detective who solves crimes in. Montreal and also in the surrounding regions. So I just uh, finished Still Life, which has all kinds of interesting subplots uh, involving people who, who make fine art. Uh, and people who live in a little village. And I think it sort of reminds me of what makes a good mystery novel, which is that it's not overly concerned with the mystery. The mystery is a really interesting one, and there's actually kind of a terrifying finale to it. But really, there's an awful lot about just like how Canadians are, and particularly in Quebec province, uh, how those Canadians are. And, and the, the constant tension uh, and and sort of gentle or not so gentle ridicule, ridicule going back between Anglo- Anglophones and Francophones uh, and all kinds of stuff that was just sort of fun. Okay, I'm being told the border will open on August 9th to, uh, to vaccinated travelers. So you still have to wait a while before you can go back to Montreal. So I would recommend reading Still Life by Louise Penny. I'm going to probably tackle, I mean, I think she's written a lot of novels with this character. This is my first one. I really enjoyed it a lot. All right. That's more recommendations than I usually have. Uh, thanks to Bill Usman and to Irene Papoulis. Thanks to Kat Pastor and to Jonathan McPants, who really could have just toughed it out for five more episodes and gotten 100, which somehow or other is just... <laughs> a much more exciting number uh, but it just didn't work out that way that's life for you yeah 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 yeah